Welcome to the Hobcast Book Show, a weekly podcast from Hobeck Books, an independent publisher of thrillers, crime, mystery and suspense novels. Each week, we'll take you behind the scenes of what we do, the challenges and the triumphs, the bumps and troughs of running a creative business in this challenging world. We'll hear from the people who make this possible, the authors, the cover designers and editors, and we'll have expert insights from our guest star interviews. Nothing is off the agenda on the Hopcast Book Show from Hobeck Books, as we combine trad values and an indie spirit. Hello, and welcome to the Hopcast Book Show, episode number 104. My name is Adrian Hobart. My name is Rebecca Collins. And together we run Hobeck Books, UK independent publishers of the following four genres. Suspense. Thrillers. Crime. And mysteries. Very welcome to the show this week. And our guest is Anne Coates, who is a journalist and an author of a number of crime novels. And we spoke to her this week from her home in South London. And uh, it's fair to say that Anne... It was good of her to join us because when we arranged the interview, she was hale and hearty, but afterwards, not so, because she had a, she was involved in an accident on a bus. Yes, yeah, so um, I think the painkillers gave her a bit of a foggy brain. Um, so we well, sh- she's pretty battered. I mean, <laughs> you know, a number of broken bones, including an elbow, which is nightmarish, and, and uh, head, head, head trauma, yeah, uh, and, and broken ribs. So, uh, yeah, sent flying because of an emergency stop on a bus in London. Um, you know, you hear of these things happening, but you know, it's quite, quite staggering. And actually, I think it's the the electric buses because I, I took one the other day as well. Um, they're a lot jerkier than their diesel counterparts. They are apparently. I wouldn't know, but yes. Yeah, no, I I, I really sense that. Anyway, uh, she joined us, and uh, we'll be speaking to her a little later in the program. Thank you so much for joining us. We we do appreciate it as we hurtle into the middle of January and 2023. It actually is the middle of January it already. It is extraordinary, yeah, it is. It and is. we still have signs of Christmas in this house, we which is a, a bit worrying. Bit. Yeah, I need to take the uh, decorations You're back. You're right to next the... to the Quality Street. Yeah, that's one thing. And there's some unused wine here in front of us from my sister, um, which is very gratefully received. And, and, and I look forward to drinking. Absolutely. And the box is going to find a happy use for bits and bobs and think later okay let's a get in- box yeah exactly let's get into some news then shall we as we we traditionally do on the hopcast we do yes um well the beginning of january is always a busy month isn't it when people are all enthusiastic about the year to come and talking about their plans and their futures and all that sort of thing and so um the bookseller do uh, one of those you know look back on 2020 articles that runs on for about 10 pages and um <laughs> padding well, padding, but also interesting, I think, too. Some of the discussion and analysis. So they look at the top um, 50 in all sorts of genres and areas. And I want to ask you, mm-hmm. crime being our thing, allegedly, I want you to see if you can name the top five cosy crime writers of 2022, according to the bookseller. I'm going to struggle, but I mean, the easy one, easy target is Richard Osman. He's number one, correct. Right. And then... um where I struggle is where the definition of cosy is and who sits within it. Now, the other one I would say is a newcomer to the, the genre, the Reverend Richard Cold. Number three, correct. 
good. Right, so we, we bumped into him at Harrogate. Still not come on the show yet. But bumped, we, we, literally. Yeah, he was charging away back for the train. Uh, and then after that, who sits in the cosy bracket? And I'm going to get, take a guess at Janice Hallett. Number four, correct. And then after that, I'm a bit lost. So number two and number five, you haven't no, managed I've no to idea. identify. Uh, if I say number two is no longer with us, so Agatha, Agatha Christie. It's in terms of yes, Agatha Christie is number two. In terms of sales, this is of course right. Yeah, yeah. And number five, I I've never read anything by this man, and he's quite prolific. And uh, a few years ago, probably about a decade ago, his books were everywhere in Waterstones. Alexander McCall Smith. Oh yeah, yeah the 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 thingy ladies detective agency. Yep, yeah, yeah. Well, okay, he's yeah. number five. Right, okay. Well, I I I wasn't aware that that would fit into cozy, but. It, if it works, it works. Well, that's terrific. I mean, it you know, it is the genre in crime at the moment. It is, without doubt, the dominant sales genre. So if I said to you, can you um, identify what the sort of typical cosy crime cover of 2022 would look like? What would you say? Oh, well, I mean, that would be strong um, graphic cover, uh, not pictorial in the sense of, you know, an image treated or anything like that. It would be cream. Uh, black border, uh, red light writing in there somewhere, something like that. Like, so you've basically described number ones, number threes, and number fours covers quite well yeah, uh, in this list. It is the trope. I mean, just as a lot of fiction still has uh, a woman in a yellow coat now walking into the distance. Yeah, red, red is one. so year before last. Yeah, um, which is for a certain type of book. Uh, it is very much following the Richard Osman cover. Do you know what I think? So you're talking about sort of psychological thrillers, aren't you? And I mm. think that the current... Uh, so we had the woman in the red coat walking away, blah, blah, woman in the yellow coat. Now it's something to do with your next-door neighbour or your husband's brother or wife's sister. And there's a, it's a house with a door. Mm-hmm. And it says something like the the person next door. The, the... Yeah, I mean, look, let's be honest. We've got, uh, we've got a couple of covers that are not dissimilar. Or at least one. We've got one. The unfamily. Yeah, we we were there first, though. Uh, we set a trend. I'd like to think so. <laughs> I'd like to think so too. Yeah, I think that's that's stretching it a little, but it is that is a popular uh, look. And and you know, part of our job is to. We were discussing this in the car, and I was on the way into Stafford. We were just gone into Stafford to play a, <laughs> a, a couple of frames of pool because we were watching the snooker. In fact, I went live to the snooker this week, the Masters at Alexandra Palace, and it was. The first time I've ever been to see live snooker. It was extraordinary. It's so much better in real life, in, in thing, even on the telly. Um, and I'm not that interested in snooker. I occasionally watch the world final and all that sort of thing. But it, I was really blown away by it. But the the thing we were talking about was, <laughs> are our covers trying to be too artistic and different? Or should we be doing what other publishers do, which is take the best-selling book, in a particular marketplace and copy the cover or at least the you know the the theme of it i actually don't think our covers are that different um personally i think i I see similarities with our covers with what's on the market um yeah to some extent I, i i'm just asking that question whether there are sales out there that you leave behind unless you know if you don't try to copy you know because a lot of publishers do do that Yes. Um, I mean, it's a question that goes around and around and around and I'm sure happens in every publishing house in the UK Absolutely. and abroad. Absolutely. Well, that can de- debate will always go on. But, uh, yeah, we re- it's funny we broached that question. 
What else have you got? Okay, your favourite topic, TikTok and BookTok. It certainly is not. What 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 are they reflecting on in the book seller well, this week? Well, again, it's in this sort of you know look back on the year mm. business, and we tried TikTok with uh, quite a lot of enthusiasm at the beginning of 2022, um, and just really didn't get very far at all. Didn't get that many views. Got quite a few followers, but it didn't make a difference to sales or anything. So no. I I must admit I've just lost interest mm. um so they've got an article here talking about the the success of certain authors on tiktok and they're saying that what these people have in common is that the books that have been successful on tiktok are backlist titles so mm. they're not titles that were published and then um gained momentum through tiktok immediately and in fact tiktok doesn't seem to favor brand new titles for some reason right that people have had success on TikTok with um, books published, you know, quite a few years ago in some cases. Now, a really good example is um, The Virgin Suicides by Jeffrey Eugeninis. I don't think I'm saying that correctly. Show me the name. Show me the name. Eugenides. That's the one. And I read it years ago, quite a few years ago. It's a brilliant book, but it's had, you know... um, he he did release a book in 2022, but 90% of his revenue or revenue from his writing has come from that book, not his brand new book. Yeah. And Colleen Hoover, I think I said this to you the other day that, I, you know, it was published, the, the book that went mad on TikTok was published six years ago. Yeah. Yeah. I, it's That's an interesting phenomenon. I don't, well, I mean, it's 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 an interesting phenomenon. And we, then when you mentioned that to me earlier today and I was saying, well, it's a bit depressing, isn't it, that. You know, we're all looking for some platform that is going to provide the next springboard for sales, particularly of fresh books. And at the moment, nothing seems to be particularly working uh, from the old favorites of Facebook and Amazon ads. Just uh, a a real struggle at the minute. And in terms of social media platforms, nothing is selling new books at present, unless it's absolutely on message for a younger demographic who inhabit those platforms, Instagram Instagram and TikTok, TikTok, yeah. But it's not very encouraging to think that, you know, you have to wait six years for your sleeper hit. Um, <laughs> sleeper and, hit, I like that. And you can't, you can't, you know, everyone's looking for, you put X in and you get Y out in publishing. And some people market their courses or whatever as being offering that certainty. Nonsense, by the way. But it, it is, it's a shame that at the moment there is no home for launching your title with any degree of confidence yeah and that is the biggest headache and challenge that we face and in fact i think the whole industry faces at the moment because we have to accept although it's 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 galling the traditional industry have a lockout on um largely on newspaper coverage and access to book programs on Radio 4 or BBC 2, whatever it might be. The Richard and Judy Book Club is too expensive for small publishers or small uh, for indie authors to get involved in. And the cost of placing your titles uh, with a Waterstones, a Tesco or a WH Smith is so prohibitively expensive. You can't, you know, as a... As a, as a you know, only the likes of the Bloomsbury's can compete, really, in, in the indus, indie industry. So it's really hard to see how you 
change that situation. We have, it's, it's, it's like a control, isn't it? Like you say, you, you would like to think if you do X, Y, and Z in your marketing strategy, that gives you results. And it's, it's, I guess it's because it's a creative um, area that that doesn't happen. Mm. Yeah. Well, I think, I think that there is a, this, this goes back to uh, a change of philosophy, perhaps, you know, in terms of certain people are making, uh, you know, doing very well in the indie sector still. Uh, but the ones that have come in afresh in the last couple of years have been very, very, and we've spoken to two of them, in Simon McCleave and Rachel McLean, they have been very, very clear that they've gone in, figured out where the market is, and written to that market, absolutely assiduously targeted a certain type of reader, and gone and got them. So that is putting X and Y and getting Z and yes, having success. but from and... our perspective and our approach... It is where we, we, you know, when we take submissions, and we haven't for over a year now, um, uh, uh, formally, we're just, if we're impressed by the writing and convinced by the story and the talent of the writer, then we have pre previously signed them. But that, we're not saying to them, go and make me a certain type of book, which some of the other publishers in our sphere do do. They do say, right, we're only interested in something where a mother is in peril, for instance. Yes. Um, so th I'm just saying that th there's a lot of there's a lot of things to consider. There's a lot of factors here, but all of it is, co you know, coalescing to a point where true creativity is problematic and difficult to to market. You know, allowing one's authors to to follow their instinct and do what they want to do is not as commercially viable, perhaps. As selling them to do a certain type of book. Well, it's, the problem is that you, yes, you can um, follow your heart and write what you want to write, and you may be that lucky person who hits the right note at the right time. Mm. So it's the same with covers. We were talking about covers. Every now and then, there's a cover that everyone remembers and everyone notices, and it's totally different to all the other covers that you see. I mean, we've talked about this book before. Um, what's it called? I am a pilgrim. I am Pilgrim, yes. I am Pilgrim with the, fing the fingerprint the on it. The fingerprint on it, yeah. There's, and interestingly, there weren't many copycats of that either. But everyone, if I say to you, I am Pilgrim, you picture that cover mm, straight yeah, away. It, it is with the, the, the gold fingerprint. And that was a taking quite a big chance, wasn't it? Yeah, right? yeah, it was very, um, you know, stylized and graphic, a, a graphic cover. Um, no, it's interesting. Um, I, you, you, shall I go into the next uh, final story before we speak to Anne, Anne Coates, mm -hmm. our guest this week on the Hobcast Book Show? Uh, and that is, um, I think this is an interesting reflection on market trends in the sense that Amazon, this unstoppable juggernaut of a business, uh, letting go of 18,000 people uh, globally as a result of having to fight costs uh, during uh, following slow sales. So Amazon are feeling the, the, the pinch. And also, I think it ought to be mentioned, and I, I fully support the, the workers on this, because they've had no rights, really. Um, but uh, one of the depots in this country has decided to go on strike because of working conditions, and uh, which is a brave move. But in fact, three of their distribution centers in the UK are shutting. Uh, partly this is because they built bigger ones that can mm. handle more traffic, and so therefore they don't need as many. But, uh, you know, probably these, uh, what do they call them, fulfillment centres, um, were only, you know, five or six years old. 
and a business, you know, they invested a lot to build them and then just quickly shut them down. That's the nature of the global economy, really. Mm. Um, right, so the company, which employs 1.5 million people globally, said red redundancies would be made in the European workforce, but did not specify which countries would be affected. In a statement to staff, Chief Executive Officer Andy Jassy said the review had been made more difficult given the uncertain economy and the company's rapid growth in the workforce. The slowdown in growth has been attributed to a sustained dip in advertising revenues and customers saving money as inflation and the cost of living continued to bite. In November, the company announced it was cutting a number of positions across its devices and books business and confirmed a voluntary reduction offer for some employees and its people experience and technology organisation. Uh, it had also paused its warehouse expansions due to overhiring during the boom period of the pandemic. Interesting. Um, I don't, well, I mean, you know, there's no question there's a slowdown and it's not very difficult to figure out why because the cost of everything has monumentally shot up. Yeah, so people are going to spend less on Amazon yeah. because it's mostly things you don't need. Well, it, I, I don't know. I mean, I still, it's still the number one place I go to. If I have an idea of something we need, that's the first place I'll look. See, I, yeah, that's that's interesting. You do order quite a lot from Amazon. I do. I <laughs> do. Seeing how much you... Um, what you feel for them as a company. Yeah, a lot. I think their distribution and their fulfilment is incredible compared to what happens to, uh, indeed, for our our, our people, uh, you know, people buying from us uh, during the the raw mail strikes um, of recent months, you know, it, uh, and the impact that had on other couriers and things like that. We were getting some terrible delivery service, you know, taking weeks for things no, to arrive. No, you'd think Amazon would have a bit of a boom because of all the issues then because they well, were always the next day still weren't yeah, they yeah yeah but i think if discretionary spending is falling uh, and this affects books but particularly you know stuff that amazon will sell you know it's really a big problem anyway uh we will move on from that as ever we finished the news with the depressing <laughs> side of things let's talk to the effervescent Anne coates who is uh, a crime author of several years but has a, a fantastic background in the wider industry, both as a journalist and um, as an abridger of Reader's Digest books, which is I fascinating. loved that, though, because I used to read my grandma's Reader's Digests. Uh, I, what we didn't get round to asking, we should ask her when we see her next in person, perhaps, is you know, how do you decide what bits to keep in and which ones to drop out? That's a, that's a real skill, isn't it? it and is. actually, I can see how that is really useful for writing novels. Absolutely. Well, her most recent... Um, uh, release was Stage Call and set on the old stage of the old Vic uh, in London. Um, but it was, a, you know, this is a fascinating interview. And as I say, Anne very kindly joining us, um, you know, after quite some considerable trauma of recent weeks, um, after, a, a, you know, a very surprise and uh, horrible accident uh, in a bus. But uh, more on that in a minute. Let's speak to Anne Coates. Well, it really is a fantastic pleasure to be speaking to Anne Coates. And I, I've been familiar with your name for a very long time. I, you're one of those figures in the British crime writing scene that, you know, your name comes up a fair bit. Yeah, you're there. Well, that's that's reassuring, isn't it? <laughs> I think so. I think I'm trying to be reassuring, but, you know, whether or not that comes over or, uh, or something weird. But anyway, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's lovely to be here and to know that you've heard of me. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. and. Um, uh, for for people not familiar with you know the few that aren't given that I know your name um how would you describe your career in terms of 
your evolution towards being a crime writer? Right. Well, I've worked in publishing and journalism all my working life, basically, well, apart from Saturday jobs and things like that. Yeah. So I, st- I started off in book publishing and uh, worked for a couple of publishers. Then I was made redundant and freelanced for a while and then went to IPC magazines. Oh, yeah. And started on, and I've worked there for about 10 years, I think. So I ended, I ended up working on Woman and, well, for the most part, Woman and Home and Woman's Weekly in their fiction department. I'm going to have to tell my mum that. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Was so that, it wasn't was that in the, it was romance. <laughs> right. Was that the fabled IPC Tower? It certainly was, except we were, because we were the posh magazines, we were in what was called low rise, which uh-huh. was a bit in front. Um, so there were five floors. The fifth floor was a restaurant. Um, yes. So, so I worked there and then went freelance. And from then on, I either did journalism or um, book editing type things. I, while I was while I was at IPC, I did quite a bit of freelance anyway, you know, freelance writing and things, articles, and having a go at short stories. And I got I got one story published quite quickly, and then I didn't get anything published for ages. You know? Yeah. And you kept I kept thinking, but I work in fiction, you know, I ought <laughs> to be able to do this. And I, I'm not sure it's a I'm not sure it's um, a good thing when people know you as well. They're sort of, they find they're more picky if it's you, you know. Whereas if if I if I was Joe Bloggs, they might have thought, well, that's not bad for Joe Bloggs, but we don't like Ann Coates, you know, <laughs> or Ann Coates' work or something. And so so I didn't um, I didn't do any fiction then. But then once I once I freelanced, I was freelancing on. I did a magazine for Shell and some financial ones, um, house magazine, in-house magazines, um, and worked on a lot of titles, you know, like old titles that are probably extinct now. You know? Yeah. And while I was doing that, I started writing fiction again. And then I started getting them published. But they were mainly, they weren't short stories, they were more, sorry, they're not short stories. They were short stories, but they weren't romantic, really. They were um, tales with a twist, which is what I really love. I mean, I, so Bella used to have um, a one-page story at the back of the magazine, Tales mm. with a Twist, and it was a thousand words, you know, and you could write your story and and I had loads of that was lovely I absolutely adored writing those and then I did longer ones that were more more complicated but more sort of about family relationships rather than you know just a man woman relation romantic relationship so so but at the same time I also um abridged books for Reader's Digest oh wow so I worked for them um for their UK department and then and then uh, then Australia um, so I did a load, load of work for Australia, which brings me very neatly to one of my books. Yes. <laughs> because <laughs> Perdition's Child was actually inspired by one of the books that I'd edited and abridged uh, wow. for the Digest. So it was, you know, there's a sort of link between all the work you do, everything you do in life. It's not lost, is it? Because you no. manage to sort of incorporate it into a book or into a character. Um, so, yes, so that's. That's that. And then I did write uh, my first crime novel. Well, actually, no, I wrote the first one and put it in a drawer. Um, and then the second one, 
I, I knew a lot of agents as well then, and I thought, oh, I'll try this. And nobody liked it. But everybody had a different reason for like not liking it. You know, it wasn't sort of everybody didn't like the same thing. It was one person didn't like the setting, one person didn't like um, the characters or whatever. Mm. And so I just put it in a drawer and left it. And then 2015, in fact, I had a, a spare afternoon and I saw this printed out manuscript in my drawer. And I thought, oh, well, I'll have a read of that and see what it's like. And I thought it could do with some work, but I think it's got legs. So I rewrote it and rewrote it and rewrote it. Um, and eventually, um, Matthew Smith at Urbane accepted yeah. Matthew, we know Matthew. Yeah, our guest <laughs> not so long ago from Halifax Noir. Yep. Yes, indeed. Um, yes, yeah, so Matthew said, oh, well, I, I see it as a trilogy. Um, which has actually gone on to five books and is now, well, I've now just printed out a draft for the sixth. So, you know, it, it has progressed. This um, is the Hannah Wiley series, right? Hannah w- Waybridge. Wait, um, Hannah Waybridge. I'm so sorry. I'm thinking of something okay. else, Wiley. <laughs> I'll tell you why in a minute. <laughs> no, Hannah Waybridge series, yes. Sorry yeah. about that. The reason I say Wiley is because I was just looking up. Um, you know that, I mean, you were saying about the, the initial struggles with fiction in the sense that, you know, you're submitting things under your name to other magazines and things like that. And you were known in the industry. And one of the things that Ronnie Barker is reminded me of Ronnie Barker in the seventies, working on the two Ronnies used to submit uh, sketches, but not under his own name because he didn't want that prejudice, you know, either the producers to put them in on the basis that it was the star of the show. So they had to, or, for someone to come and say, well, we can't use it. So he went as Gerald Wiley. Gerald Wiley. Gerald Wiley. That's a good did you and know. He kept that secret until the show finished, long after the show finished. And I think the Four Candles um, sketch yes. uh, was a Gerald Wiley one. And they said, you know, who is this guy? He kept <laughs> coming up with this comedy gold. Uh, we've got to meet him. And he kept that secret uh you know which is extraordinary really but you can see why because there is this thing of as a person within the industry sometimes that can be counter yeah because they don't want to show favoritism or they don't want to have almost sort of um unconscious favoritism yeah it's the unconscious bias but yeah bias can work both ways can't it you know so you've got it's a it's, you can't win. <laughs> and also there's this, this element within, I'm sure, the BBC at the time was that there was a snobbery attached to the writing to some extent, I think, that, you know, everyone had their s- slot, their position in the in the production, and yeah. you never um, swapped around. You didn't, you know, actors in those days, as they nowadays in major television series, they're always executive producers, but they're also directors of their own shows yeah. sometimes. Yeah. That would never have been a bit loud back then because it was so heavily unionized. So I'm sure he had, you know, he had very good reasons. But anyway, that, that's what, you know, this is how my brain works. I'm so yeah. sorry about that. And that's why it's I got Hannah, Hannah Wiley. Wiley. Hannah right. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Hannah Wiley, Hannah Waybridge. Well, Hannah Wiley will be appearing in a future book, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> she might be a character in somebody's book. Yeah. It's, that's fascinating. So Matthew, into, you know, it, seeing the legs that your character had, was that a revelation to you? Were you surprised when he said that to you? Or were you, did you have a feeling that, that, that there was potential? It's, it's interesting because after I'd finished the first one, 
I did write three chapters for the second one. And yet I didn't really think about it as the second one, but I had written three chapters. And the three chapters sort of got moved to each new computer, laptop, you know, whereas Hannah Weybridge, the first story, didn't. You know, I had to retype that one. Um, so it was it was quite funny. So when he said, you know, I could see it as a, I thought, I've got the first three chapters. <laughs> so that, so I was, I was way in, you know, I was there. Yeah, you're invested um, already, yeah. Yeah, so, um, and I, I did see the character going on then. And then from three, obviously it went to four and five. Mm. But I just think she lives inside my head. She lives with me. You know, it's really enjoyable for me to explore the the investigations she gets involved in by using things that I have worked on as well. You know, so the very first story um, in in Dancers in the Wind is starts starts with an interview that Hannah does with a prostitute and a police officer at King's Cross before the gentrification, you know, in the 90s. Yeah. And in fact, I did interview a prostitute and a police officer uh, for News of the World for their magazine. And in the end, they didn't use it because they just said it was too traumatic. And it was, you know, I mean, the poor girl. I mean, in, in my book, she lasts... You know, she's she's a different character completely. But the one, the real life girl probably died within a few months of me interviewing her. You know, she was obviously deeply into drugs and dangerous behaviour. So I, the poor thing, you know, but it was nice in a way to give her a different life. Mm. Yeah. Change, change the outcome a little bit for her. Um, yes. So... I forget where I was then. I was, I was, no, I was, not at all. I mean, you 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 were saying um, yes. about that first story and, and how yes, it, you, so, I, so, and it sort of links with what you were saying about how everything you do in life yeah. comes back and can fuel, fuel because, something I mean, later. It's, it's really irritating when people say, especially my friends, say, oh, well, you know, Hannah is you, you know, we, we know that, that she says that, you say that, you know. And I... I use the old um, Virginia Woolf quote about, you know, um, a writer writes from every book, every person, every everything. And so I turn around to them and say, yes, but I'm also the villain. So yes, be, I like that. So be careful. <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> because everybody, you know, and somebody once said, oh, you know, you look too, you look too sweet and innocent, so I don't know, sweet and nice to write such sort of gritty crime and I thought well that's a bit a sexist and possibly also um a really silly way of looking at people and I and I think well Hannah my character mm. gets away with doing things because people underestimate her you know they they think of her as somebody who's oh this this silly young woman well she's not that young but you know silly woman who um we could we can all get one over on her and of course she doesn't. I knew somebody, um, a friend of mine, Labour Party member, who, who tragically died a few years ago. And she honestly, she looked like a bad lady. I mean, she just, if you saw her in the street, you'd sort of hope that you wouldn't say hello sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> you know, she just, but she had the mind, I mean, her, her mind was amazing and, and it was forensic. 
And she said to me once, she said, you know, they all underestimate me in council. Yeah. And I and then I stand up and cut the, the things beneath. I just cut the trees beneath them like that, you know, and just cut the swathe because she could, because she was so intelligent. But they just wrote her off because, in fact, she did look like a bad lady. You know, I've often heard that said of, of, of top barristers as well. Some of the most shambolic ones with the worst silks and the, you know, whatever their wigs akimbo just tear people apart when, yeah. you know, they switch on. But yeah. People do make so many judgments based on so much information they get from just your appearance, your, your gender, totally, your age, yeah. what you're wearing, your body language, everything. Yeah, absolutely. And that's one of the joys of writing, isn't it? In the sense, if you've got an eye for that, the, and you, you, you know, I, it's funny today, it's the first time I've been to London for, for quite some time and sitting in a Pret-a-Manger at Great Portland Street and just observing the different characters coming in. I haven't really had that chance to no, watch. No, to sort of, pandemic and everything. Yeah, 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 yeah. Mm-hmm. Human watch and, and just thinking right i bet one person in here is we're all going to underestimate them they're going to be amazing they're going to be a wonderful engineer working on crossrail or whatever it is <laughs> um but anyway it, i digress again but it, it is that thing about it's, it's ab- absolutely true and, and i think i mean I'm, I'm these these are not but um i had one eye lasered but being short-sighted as well you tend to you, you don't often recognize faces from a distance yeah. but i could recognize your walk and I, I do a lot of that, you know, I, I, I write about people's walks a lot because I think that that is so distinctive. You know, if, if somebody's got a slight limp or the way they carry themselves, as you said, you know, the way that they carry themselves or the type of shoes they wear. And I mean, I have a lovely time on buses, you know, I just, <laughs> and it's just such a shame. I mean, now and again, I've managed to get a photo, but very often, you know, you, you think I saw a woman and she was, she was dressed in the most, she was like um, Joseph's Technicolor dream coat, you know, yeah. she was all over. It was stripes and flowers and colours. And, and I thought, I, that, well, I'm going to use that woman, you know. Mm. <laughs> and in fact, um, I, I put my character Lucy in those sort of um, clothes when she went to a funeral um, because of that, probably all she could find in the charity shop or something, you know. So, yeah, I, I just love I just love doing things like that, you know. And sometimes, so you know, people say, oh, "Do you use um, real people?" And there are a few real people in my in my book, or have been real people in my books. But I think it's quite. I mean, most most people, if if they're the villain, they they certainly wouldn't want to be expose themselves, you know, and sort of say, "Oh, you shouldn't you shouldn't have used me. I recognise myself," you know. Mm-hmm. So I, th- I think I think if one's fairly safe with that sort of thing, but I do I do like sort of mixing and matching. So you know, sort of like somebody's somebody's outward appearance with their another person's in- inner life. Yeah, yeah. You know, I love the idea that I was once sat in a coffee shop, minding my own business, reading a book, and there was a writer on the next table, and they looked at me and thought, "I'm going to write you in my book." <laughs> <laughs> Well, that could be true, though. I could be in someone's book. You could easily, and then it was what, what was fascinating is that I think sometimes I, I think there's a, a there's a sort of cosmic link when you write about characters. I think, and so things do happen. Yeah, and I 
I know that um, I'm sure Caroline won't mind me saying at Maston on UK Book Cup. Oh, yeah, yeah. We know Caroline. <laughs> and when I was being interviewed for one book, it must have been Perdition's Child, she was on the chat and said, oh, I'd love to be a character in a book. And I sort of remember that. And I was looking for a name for a theatrical agent. And I said, so I sent her a message and said, you know, you still up for this because, I'm, you know, I want a theatrical agent and think your name would be perfect. And she said, oh, yes. And then she actually sent me some information about herself as well, which I didn't, hadn't asked for, you know, and it was, I, I don't mean that ungraciously, I hadn't asked for. I mean, I didn't say, you must tell me something. But, um, and I can't tell you what it is because it will spoil the, the story for anybody else who, who reads the book, you know, comes to the book. So in stage school, stage school, um, Caroline is a theatrical agent and there's something that happens. And afterwards, she said, she sent me a message, she said, that actually did happen to me. Really? She told me, but it had happened. She said, that, that, is, that is spooky. <laughs> There is, there is, you're that, at, is that co- I love that phrase, the cosmic thread. I think that is very, very much what happens. And I think that it's, it's amazing how many people uh, of our recent guests have been saying similar things. You know, the cosmic thread comes to them and the, uh, the characters are driven by, you know, they have no yeah, it's like, like, control over what the, where the, where the direction's going on, on things. Yeah. So you, I, you... I have one, I mean, I met the character. I, I'm not, I'm not a planner sadly or a plotter um and there's when I was writing the second book there are some characters and right at the end there's a revelation about one of the characters and I thought oh that's what it was (laughs) (laughs) they were giving me clues all the way along along throughout the writing and I thought how interesting because I hadn't thought about it it was just the way it was and Nobody has ever picked up on it. Nobody's ever made a un- unkind, I'd say unkind comment. Nobody's sort of had a, had a go at me for including that type of person. Um, and I just thought it was really strange, you know, because I, I was sitting there thinking, wow. <laughs> no, that's wonderful. That yeah, must be a great feeling. <laughs> well, it's what we're talking about. The character is real. It's not just invented by you, but they're almost sort of, they tell you what, what they want to happen to their life and oh absolutely and I, I think as well with characters there there are people you know <clears throat> excuse me in your own life when you know you've got a friend who is there with you for weeks and weeks and weeks and years on end or something then disappears but then comes back in you know there's a sort of flow in your life of how characters appear and go back again yeah relationships and so that that's really what I have for Hannah and so some of the some of the all of the characters are people and have their own backstory. And some of them are sort of going nudge nudge. Every now and then. it's my turn now. Yeah. <laughs> my one. So so certainly um, Lucy, who was the character I mentioned, who who I dressed in those colourful character, <laughs> colourful clothes. And so she she really came to the fore in the fourth book. Uh, she waited her time. <laughs> <laughs> But there are other characters who, you know, you say, oh, I haven't seen them for a while. I, I, sometimes I'm sitting there and I think, oh, I, you know, I, Hannah, hasn't seen X for a while. Maybe we ought to bring that in and see see what that adds to the mix, you know. Yeah, 
dial them up. So let, let's talk about Stage Call because you, you brought it up, and this is the most recent book you've had published. Um, yes. And it's I, I love the fact it's set at the Old Vic uh, Theatre. So for those who don't know London, and this is for our US listeners. And me too, I don't really know London. Well, no, the Old Vic is an extraordinary theatre in the sense that it's it's sort of lone tooths out, in the, out down on the South Bank. And, of course, the National Theatre was based there and is now on the bank of the, the Thames yeah. on the South. But it is the sort of shining beacon of culture in that section of, of um, I guess, it, is it Bermondsey it's in? No, it's Waterloo. Waterloo. Okay, I'm so sorry. No, uh, no, I'll just, just correct you because it's um, it's my local theatre, basically. Yeah, right. <laughs> and and it was, my, my mum was born in Waterloo and the book is dedicated to her. And in fact... The, the character the character's name who who dies the actress is my mum's name you know I, I've decided I, I hadn't again I hadn't sort of decided on that and then I was sort of thinking oh I don't like that surname well, I don't, give her her name you know <laughs> get yeah. her mum's name but my mum told me this lovely sto- story about her she and her mother go into the old vic and my, my grandmother sort of turned up and sort of sat down in the theatre with a cheese and onion roll <laughs> So she was so embarrassed because my mum went to drama school. She was sitting there with her mother eating a cheese and onion roll yeah, in the old yeah, yeah. <laughs> It always, always brings a lovely smile to me. And so my daughter and my granddaughter, we, we all go, we go to the old Vic, you know, everything we can sort of thing. So, uh, so we went to see A Christmas Carol for about the fourth time this year. Yeah. <laughs> and off to see um, Sylvia in February. About so, Sylvia yeah. Plath, is it? No, no, it's Sylvia Pankhurst. Oh, yes. I really am making every misassumption <laughs> known to man. He's recovering from a bad cold, which he's given to me, so I'm a bit foggy today. <laughs> no, I'm, no, I'm, I'm just out off off beam. No, that's it's fascinating. It's a fascinating theatre because you know, it, uh, in the sense that it was where the, the home of the the National Theatre under Sir Laurence Olivier. Yes. And yeah. and then obviously they purpose built the one in 1976, which um I used to be taken a lot to as um as a schoolboy. I absolutely love what, it. School trips or something. Yeah, oh, school trips, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because um Sir Peter Hall, who took over the National Theatre, was uh, a, a former schoolboy at my my school. So uh, we had this sort of connection. But it's it's um and what's your feeling about that theatre now? Because it's clearly had uh, had a creative renaissance in recent years with Kevin Are you Spacey. About the old Vic, the old Vic, yeah, yes, yes, yeah. Um, Kevin Spacey is, yeah. Kevin Spacey was the creative director at the old Vic for quite a few years. Was and, and now there's a shadow over him. So has that affected the you know your feeling about the theatre at all, or is it? No, I, it's it's really strange. I mean, he he did amazing things there, and he also introduced. Um, well, he started, I think, the the um, people linked up with PwC to do their um, previews, £10 preview tickets. Yeah, £10 previews, yeah. So he start, started that. He also started what was a sort of local, um, you could sign up as a, well, you didn't sign up as a local. Um, if you went in to buy a ticket and you took, you know, your gas bill and you know, something else, you could buy certain tickets on certain days of the week. Amazing, yeah. Um, a lot cheaper. And and when when he left, you know, I mean, obviously it's been taken over. We've got completely different things. But w- when he was exposed, I, I felt I think so many people felt so dreadfully let down by him 
Mm. You know, you, you, it's it's sort of you almost feel a personal dis- disappointment with somebody who's done such amazing things in in theatre. But now the old Vic is is run taking on from what he he did, but they have um, an OV local, and you just sign up for that. And so if you live in Southwark or Lambeth, you yeah. can get 20% off your tickets um, Monday to Thursday, get 20% off food and drink and programmes. Um, and it's fantastic. And then you can also sign up for their points system, which I didn't even think of. You know, I just, yes, you know, sign up for everything, really. <laughs> and a while ago, it was, it was before Christmas, um, I, I always, you know, when I go to the theatre, I always put something up on Twitter or whatever, and, you know, sort of mm. mini review, if you like. And and I suddenly got um, a private message from the old Vic saying, we loved your review of um, Jitney um, and you've won £100. And I thought, (laughs) I thought, this is a joke, you know. So anyway, I sent my details off and I didn't, they said, you know, send your email and and I didn't hear anything for a while. And I thought, oh, you know, it was some Nigerian fishing exercise or something. (laughs) And no, no, they sent me the voucher. And so that's, and I'd already bought our tickets for um, Christmas Carol. So next thing up was um, Sylvia. So I said to my daughter, so let's, let's Randall, go and see it. And amazingly, they had gave half price tickets for children in that one. I thought, wow, you know, so that was one thing. And then when I came to pay, it said, oh, um, you've got enough points to pay for the child ticket. So that was off my thing and because we because I'd won this voucher I thought oh I'm gonna have my favorite seats my favorite seats are first row dress circle virtually every theater I can think of first row dress circle and so we've got three tickets so the three of us are going to the theater for 30 quid excellent <laughs> brilliant brilliant the old Vic could do no wrong in my eyes. No, absolutely. But in terms of your research around the old Vic, because clearly you've been going a long time and you've got a great, you know, involvement there and and passion for it. Did you do any sort of specific research? Did you reach out to them to sort of kind of come backstage, anything like that? I went went on their um, website and they, they had a sort of a history blog sort of thing there that I had a look at. Um, there was also something about, about the guy, you know, it was a sort of blog thing about the guy who did, who was on Vax, um, I'm just going to move that, yeah, um, the guy who was the um, doorman, you know, mm. stage four. And so, and that was fascinating, so I thought, well, I'll have a look at that. And I, you know, and I knew, I, you know, I've, I've walked around Water, Waterloo having worked there and family lived there, you know, so yeah. I know where the side entrance is, where they take the, you know, the, the big um, uh, sets and things like, things like that in. Uh, and, yeah, so I didn't, strangely enough, I didn't. And uh, another sort of silly coincidence in stage call, um, there's, um, a set that's made up for the for the um, play that's currently on, and the director shows Hannah. You know, this sort of it's a bit like a doll's house setting. You know, and I thought, oh, I just thought I'd made it up. And anyway, I went to um, the opera house with a friend, 
And we walked in and she said, look, there's all your sets. And they had them behind a glass glass cabinet things, you know, as you walk round. And I thought, oh, I didn't make it up, you see, it was there all along. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that must be a lovely feeling when when something you've imagined is is real. Yes, and in fact, my second book, I had um, a pre-launch event with my local, one of the local bookshops. And as it turned out, I mean, you know, poor Matthew, he made had all this stuff printed for us you know with he wanted these leaflets and he wanted this and he wanted that and of course I've got a lot of people I know in the area so I can always get a fairly good group you get a crowd in yeah and when we when I got there there were only two extra people who I hadn't personally invited one was somebody I knew anyway and he would he would be anywhere for a glass of wine (laughs) and the other, this other person sat there and was very, and we were talking about where I'd set the second one, which is in St John the Evangelist, Waterloo. And when I started writing that, I'd never even been in the church, let alone anything else. But the crypts were where I used, um, where it, where the opening scene is, and um, Hannah's friend did sort of pro bono. Um, dentistry there for the people who lived in um, Kabul City. Yeah. And so it was really interesting. So this woman said to me afterwards, I was a senior social worker there then. And she, you know, I said, really? <laughs> so they did actually use those rooms, the, the crypt rooms, for sort of outreach work. Amazing. So I was, yeah, just sort of like, wow. <laughs> You, cosmic you, link again well you have a fantastic instinct for <laughs> these things. But, to, yeah. but i think i think there is an element of, as a I'm, I'm not as, as distinguished a journalist as, as yourself and i didn't do it, sort of the journalism of beating the you know the streets and doing stories like that yeah. as long as perhaps you did but um there you do pick that up don't you i mean i i i think that being a journalist uh gives you fantastic access to all sorts of things in life some terrible things yes. and some great things. Yeah. But what it does do is that you can hoover up these little things that suddenly make sense when you're trying to sort of create a scene. Certainly I find this when I'm writing is that, you know, I don't think I'm that far wrong, even though I haven't actually been to the place because I've got a feel for, I've been through the doors of something like this before, yeah, I or I, I've experienced the sort of people who work in this industry yeah, in yeah. a way you don't if you if you're just in a in a in a standard job. But is it because yeah. you have to be so observant? I mean, you have to be yes. good at reading well, people. I think, yes, I think it was quite funny. I, there was one review I had, um, not of Stage Call. I can't remember which one it was. I, I don't know who the man was. Um, he was an ex-soldier who now wrote, um, and and he was incredibly critical of. Um, my book and he said and and I've never heard of a journalist going to all these amazing places you know and I thought actually mate I've been to every single one invited as a journalist you know but I didn't obviously I didn't respond but I just thought actually that's so silly because I had been as a journalist to you know all of those places and, and everything and it's a it's a bit like um I um somebody you know you you get a writer who's been a senior social worker or a senior something or other and they criticize that somebody criticizes oh that would never happen you know and you know damn well this person who wrote knows the ins and outs of the system 
more than virtually any other person you know going so yeah and that's often it is something that people always throw in the way of you know all authors i think get it to some extent oh that would never happen yeah well that that wasn't that price at that in that year because i remember having a cosmopolitan in 1933 and it costs this much <laughs> whatever <laughs> yeah <laughs> that's a tough one i um I want to turn back to, to the writing process, if I may, uh, Anne, which is is from a journalism point of view, given that, you know, you've worked to deadlines and it, clearly if you were doing the weekly magazine and, and, and uh, to, you know, there's a slightly longer uh, lead time um, because I was writing, you know, when I first started writing journalism, it was to the hour because of, you know, broadcast oh, bulletins. Stuff as well, which was. Yeah, that's much, much quicker turnaround. Oh, isn't yeah, it? absolutely. Absolutely, um, you do but, learn to sit down and write. Yes, because you, you, you haven't got you, you haven't got the chance. You, there isn't the uh, the muse needs to take luxury. me. You haven't got the luxury of no, you don't. Months, you know, and, and wait wait until the the fifth month before you start or something. <laughs> so, so but how's that how's that helped you? I mean, you know, the speed at which you can you can. I'm not. I'm not a very fast writer, actually. Mm. Well, I am fast, but I'm not. I don't I don't do a lot I don't do it at length in each session um so that I find that's irritate that irritates me about me you know I think for god's sake you know these people who've sat there and said I did 5,000 words today (laughs) (laughs) you see them on twitter all the time don't you yeah yeah. Yeah, I really 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 hate you (laughs) you're another character in the book you know yeah you're gonna die admire people who can do that I mean, mind you, they might have written the, 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 the all the times. So. That, that <laughs> happens. Or rewritten the same paragraph 20 times. <laughs> yes. So I think I think what it does as, as well, because, because I, yes, the journalism side, definitely writing to time and producing the correct number of words as well. That's the other thing. But I think because I also worked so long abridging books, Mm. I try to avoid the bits where, you know, you turn off, the reader turns off. I, you know, there's that. that and anyway, you, you know, try to avoid the bits where the, the description where the reader sort of goes, oh, I'll skip that page, you know. Yeah. So I do I do try and avoid those. Bits, and I think that is, that has honed my, mm. if you like, that I don't I don't put in a lot of superfluous stuff. And I think you you do get some books, not not saying all, but you do get some books where you obviously somebody thinks I've got to write eighty thousand. Mm. And you know, you could easily cut ten thousand without looking. Yeah. Because, yeah. Because it's just not worth it. So I think I think that that is really that was really useful for me, making me um aware of making each paragraph work. Yeah, that's true, isn't it? Because you've got to capture the person's attention. I think that's that's a really good point. Every Mm -hmm. every paragraph has to work, Um, and indeed, being a journalist, it's really good to know what a paragraph is. Because so many authors that send to us don't know what a paragraph is. Yes. Yeah, I mean, I I used to read for you know competitions and things like that sometimes, Mm. and I sort of think, wow. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and when when I worked, uh, you know, on Women's Weekly and Women at Home, everybody thought they could write a romantic. You know, romance is really easy to write, isn't it? No, it's one of the hardest things to write 
and do well. Mm. To be sincere. And if you're not sincere, it jumps out of the page. Yes. And, you know, you, so anyway, I remember meeting this woman at a dinner party and she said, oh, I'd, I, I've done, you know, I've lived in all these exotic places and I'd love to write something. That'd be great. Why don't you, you know, send a few in sort of thing? And what she sent in was sort of like predated me. You know, it was sort of like the 50s housewife type thing. And I thought, what happened to those fantastic exotic places she'd been to? And she had said to me, you know, I can take anything you say on the chin, don't worry. And so I wrote to her and explained what was wrong. And I didn't hear back. And then I met her husband at another dinner. He was on his own at this dinner party. And he said, my wife didn't speak for three weeks after you all left. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, dear. I, I felt so bad. <laughs> Well, she shouldn't have said she could take it, should she? No, very rarely when people say that, can they take it? That's because they think they're not going to get it. That's that's the reason, yeah. is they don't actually expect any they're, any they're, negative they're, feedback. Yes, yeah. It's interesting, you, yeah. you talk about the, the romance side of things, and I, 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 before we get to the random question, which is coming, but yeah. it, it is such an important um, area of fiction, and I, I think it is, that's very interesting what you say about the sincerity thing. Um, but in your, if you were distilling all that experience of of, of managing and writing romantic fiction, um, what do people get wrong? Because I think that almost the best romance stories are the ones where you're not actually aware that you're reading a romance. Is Absolutely. that fair? Absolutely, I would totally agree with that. It's like when you when you um, when an actor. In fact, I was having this discussion yesterday about Happy Valley. Yeah. Sarah Lancashire. You don't think of her as Sarah Lancashire. You think of her as DS, you know. And She's not Raquel from Coronation Street. <laughs> she isn't. She isn't. Or she used to tutor in um, drama as well in Manchester. But no, and you shouldn't notice that it's. I, I think. I think it's. It's a shame that romance has got so um, marginalised in a way. And it never comes up on on lists of you know my top tens and things like that. Really, yeah. yeah it's what, some of the best selling books. You know, the best selling genre is romance, and people love it. I mean, personally, I couldn't stand Barbara Cartman's, <laughs> <laughs> but you have to read them sometimes. But what about Jackie yeah, Collins? Where do you stand on her? Well, she educated me. Mm. I well, I think Jackie Collins. Uh, yeah. I liked her. I, I had a conversation with her once and she was utterly, utterly charming. Oh, my Aunt Jackie. She was so lovely. She was. She was so lovely. Um, and I think that um, when people are sincere, you don't, you don't notice anything. You know, you're not thinking, oh, he's going to meet her. Oh, she's going to fall out with him. You know, it, it, oh yeah, it's boy meets girl problems. At the end of it, they've resolved. You know, you, you shouldn't be aware. And in fact, there are romances running through my Hannah Weybridge. Yeah, and it's not. You know, she she's a, a woman who, you know, has has a has a fling, and then you know, then meets other people. You know, and other people enjoy her company. Other men enjoy her company as well. So it's. It's not a major part of it, but it's a part of life. Mm. 
Uh, totally. And uh, well, it's interesting because um, my long gestated piece of uh, writing what that you gonna say then <laughs> well no the, the novel i've been working on for a very long time and you know it hasn't really seen any action for a good year now but i used a romance structure even though it's essentially a spy mystery world war ii thing i've used the core relationship that develops through the book between my two characters that we you know came out with while shopping in sainsbury's with with rebecca here um basically using a, a structure of a romance story moved that rather than having all the sort of plot points being oh that twist and this twist i wanted to make it so that the reader was totally involved in that but mostly driven by will they won't they um and the dynamics of the pressure of a relationship that is nascent they don't get on with each other at the beginning and eventually they'll get resolved um, but it, it just felt like the most perfect spine to provide <laughs> for what ends up being a mystery story. Yes, and why not? Yeah. I didn't read it for the for the mystery. I read it for the romance. Will 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 they fall in love at the end? Will they? Oh. Will they? Will they? <laughs> will she ever forgive him for the death oh, of... Oh, he's so very so. naughty, though, isn't he? He's a very naughty boy. It's me, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he's very naughty. <laughs> That's fantastic. Listen, um, and it's been a fabulous interview. Thank you so much for spending some time with us on the Hobcast Book Show. Uh, let's get to the point, though, where everyone <laughs> trembles. Uh, you had... Uh, Sounds so scary. You had Kate really Moss with two S's in tears. You've, uh, you've, <laughs> if Denise Mina was begging oh, for mercy. Denise Mina loved her question. No, I know, I know. And Ian Rankin will never speak to you again. So, Anne Coates, here you go. Here is Rebecca's random question. What is your favourite smell? Oh, babies. Yes, <laughs> yes. Yeah, I quite agree with you. Sort of I... smell that sort of disappears after a while, but they are lovely, you know. <laughs> yes. And I said that really quickly, didn't I? So, yeah. <laughs> so you're being sincere. We get that. Yeah, yeah no, you're absolutely right. Because uh, as we've been explained to uh, our listeners over the last two or three weeks, my baby nephew louis came over from australia and met him he's only four months old and that baby smell was absolutely i mean it had such an amazing effect on me didn't it i was crying within <laughs> seconds of holding him for the first time so cute but uh, and I, they all have their own baby smell too because yes. i've got three boys and they smell different from each other oh, yes i know to, I, a friend of mine um who loved being in the, she was, she was in the book as a, as a character um, with the baby. And we met when we were both pregnant and, but her, her book, I'm sorry, her son always smelled really, really. And I thought, why does he smell so different? You know? And it was because she, I don't know if I have to say this, she might be listening. Um, she got him um, tinned baby food and it had that, there was a certain smell that went with it. And yeah. that's what I could smell. Whereas my daughter was, was only given food that prepared by my fair hand. <laughs> and said, you said you're such a purist, Anne. <laughs> yeah, there is a certain smell to cow and gate, isn't there? I don't know. I, I'm, I'm with you. I used to puree eggplants and not eggplants, um, yeah. uh, butternut squash. That's what they used yeah, to do. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. In the freezer with little cubes of butternut squash. Oh, blimey, you're taking me back to that period. I don't want to. <laughs> But uh, no, that's a, that's a really good choice. Uh, what's yours, love? 
Oh, I think the sea. I just love the smell of the sea, but babies is quite close up there, though. Yes. Yeah, I like the sea as well, though. And, yeah. and braised red cabbage when it's cooking. And even though I don't one. smoke, I love tobacco and leather. You know, oh, like sort of the smell of an old gentleman's club. Um, something like that. But, you know, the, That's I something we'd be privileged to, Rebecca, is it? An old gentleman's club. <laughs> no, sadly not. No, no, that's it. That's part of my longing for those days of you know uh, that I set in the World War Two. So a smell of grandparents, though, because both yes. my grandparents yeah. smoked. My grandfather smoked a pipe, and my grandma. It's my grandpa smoked. Jeff definitely. And and yeah. grandpappy, as we called him, he definitely <laughs> smelled of leather and tobacco. <laughs> and so does and so. Does Jeremy Clarkson on the one occasion I've met him? Smell Jeremy Clarkson. He arrived at my local radio station at about six thirty in the morning to speak up for smokers uh, on behalf of whatever the outfit was called. Uh, it wasn't Ash or Forest or I can't remember anyway. The the people who were pro smoking, and he turned up in his jag, uh, smelling of leather and tobacco. So you like the smell of Jeremy Clarkson? I do. Yes, oh, that's very worrying. Yes, I'm very attracted to the musk. Of Jeremy Clarkson. (laughs) And on that bombshell, uh, as Alan Partridge might say. uh, And thank you so much for joining us. Uh, If people want to find out more about your uh, writing and about you, where should they go? Um, Well, I'm on Twitter, Facebook, and also my author website is ancoatsauthor.com. Fantastic. And, of course, your books are out with Red Dog Press at the moment. <laughs> they are, yes. Yes, so obviously because Abane ceased trading. Yeah. And I moved across, yeah. Absolutely, and we're, we're looking forward to speaking to Sean <laughs> very soon. Sean on the podcast, aren't we? I didn't know this, but I used to be his neighbour uh, living in the same village. We didn't know each other, which is crazy. <laughs> Absolutely wonderful. And Coates, thank you so much. And uh, we wish you a fantastic year to come. Thank you. Well, it must get better, mustn't it? Well, yes. Absolutely, I mean, as yeah. we will have explained at the beginning of the the show, uh, yeah, you've you've been in the wars a little bit, but uh, and in general, we hope the world improves too. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much for for joining us. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you so much to Anne Coates for joining us this week. Who's our guest next week? It's somebody called David Beckler, and he's a writer from the north of England, and he writes thrillers. And he's from, what, the Manchester area? Yeah, the Manchester area, I believe. But he's had quite an interesting life, I think, which we will find out next week. David Beckler, then. uh, Not Beckham. Beckler. (laughs) Oh, gosh, can you imagine if it was David Beckham? Well, that would be interesting. You know, it'd be like, uh, yeah, I've done really well with the book and uh, really happy. No, it sounds more like Ronnie O'Sullivan. You know, uh, know, Victoria helped me a little bit. And, uh, yeah, she helped me with the spellings. No, no. I digress. It's not my best impression. That is definitely more Ronnie O'Sullivan. Who's Ronnie O'Sullivan? He's the world number one snooker player. Oh, and the world champion. The sparkly guy with the stick. No, not oh. the sparkly guy. That was Sean Murphy. <laughs> <laughs> with a Q. He's been trying to get me into snooker. Since well, you went to, to the thing, Yeah, we watched it every night on TV, haven't we? Mm, we have, yeah. It is, it's, it's reignited uh, some sort of dormant interest in snooker. It's It's a fascinating... And so we have thing to watch live. It we, really is. We have the Moley guy, who's a bit cantankerous. Uh, you're talking about Barry Hawkins, and then we have Sparkly guy, who's Sean Murphy, and Judge Dredd. That's Judd Trump. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> We're getting there. We're getting there with some awareness of. The I'm snooker. being educated. <laughs> yeah. 
But Rocket Ronnie O'Sullivan, uh, the greatest player to have ever picked up a cue. Um, and I got to see him the other day. He lost to Mark Williams. It was an amazing match, though. Uh, right. Well, what is to come apart from uh, talking to our guest for next week? We've got lots of uh, author meetings this week. We've got a, a myriad of projects on the go. We've had a lot of manuscripts arrive from, from for, for next week. I books. know. It's like buses, isn't mm. it? So we've, we've had um, a book two a standalone i'm now reading a book four which i'm enjoying very much yeah i've um, been reading a book four as well so yeah lots to feedback on to to various authors uh, as we, we work through the week and um yeah i think it's just firstly i've I've looked out the window uh past four thirty and thought oh, it's still quite bright i think the days are lengthening Technically, they are. Anyway, just feel, begin to feel that way. Thank goodness. Well, yes. We've got a way to go yet, though, haven't we? Until we get too excited and dance around the garden with sticks and things. But... <laughs> yeah, I can't wait for that. <laughs> and the cat has managed to stay mostly out of the podcast, but she did make one brief appearance. Um, she, she's looking forward to spring and a few more mice to chase. Yeah, some more dead bodies to bring into the house. Absolutely. No, no, no doubt of that. Well, thank you so much for joining us here on the Hobcast Book Show. Don't forget to go to our website, www.hobeck.net, where you can find out all about our authors, our audiobooks, and all the news is gathered there. And we'll be back again with our next show uh, with David Beckler. Can't <laughs> wait to speak to you then. So from myself, Adrian Hobart. And myself, Rebecca Collins. Thank you so much for joining us and have a wonderful and... Creative. Week. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the Hobcast from Hobeck Books with Adrian Hobart and Rebecca Collins. You can find the show notes at our website, www.hobeck.net. You can also use the exclusive Hobcast discount code for any of the products at our Hobeck online store. Just enter the code HOBCAST20 for a 20% discount. Don't forget to subscribe to the Hobcast and feel free to contact us with any feedback. Until next time, remember our motto, Trad Values, Indie Spirit. Spirit.